Where were you on April 19th, 2020? That day will go down in infamy because it is the day that we began Genesis in our church. April 19th, 2020. And I preached a sermon called The God Who Is There. And many of you didn't even know about Church of the Vine at that point. And we had, we were very small. And I preached that sermon looking at my iPhone in my living room because it was the lockdown for COVID during that time. And we've preached through, I preached through Romans between that time, First Timothy, some other series here and there. But we have finally come to the last section in the book of Genesis. And so it has been a long journey and it has been a blessing to go through this book. And it is a book of beginnings. So Genesis answers, among many other questions, questions like, how did the world begin or how did the family of Israel begin? And how is it that Israel split into 12 tribes? That's what we're going to talk about today. The book of Genesis begins with a God who is there, who created the universe and everything in it. And that's chapters 1 through 11. Then in chapter, um, or 1 through 3 rather, or 1 through 2, then the narrative kind of narrows down to Adam and the human race and traces his, the history of the human race to the birth of the different nations who split at the Tower of Babel. Then the narrative narrows even more to not just world history or universal history, but to the history of a specific family in Genesis chapter 12, and that's the family of Abraham. And we've gone through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now we've been studying the story of Joseph that picked up in chapter 37 and carries through chapter 50. And at this point today, the Genesis record will close out with blessings and burials. Jacob in chapters 48 and 49, blesses his sons who are ancestors of the 12 tribes of Israel. Then both Jacob and Joseph die and are buried. And then Genesis therefore takes us from the beginning of creation all the way to the birth of the 12 tribes of Israel and the death of the patriarchs. The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and you could probably stick Joseph in there as well. Now my aim in this passage, if you just look at your Bibles, Genesis 48 through 50, there's these long blessings and poetic language and strong, you know, Issachar is a strong donkey and, and Asher's food will be rich. Joseph is a fruitful bough and these things can be very confusing and disorienting for the modern reader. So I have two aims today in chapters 48 through 50. My first aim is just to demystify this passage for you um, and show you how it shapes the rest of the Bible. So let's just demystify what's going on here. It's not, it's not some incoherent rambling. This is the birth of the nations of Israel. Khalil, could you turn me up just a bit? My, my voice is weak today. <clears throat> Secondly, I would like to take the deaths, a little lower, take the deaths, thank you, brother, <clears throat> of Jacob and Joseph and put them forward to you as examples of what it means to die in faith. So we have demystifying the passage and then examples of dying in faith. So would you just read with me? Um, we're not going to cover every single verse because it is a big chunk of passages, but 
40 through 50 is really the, uh, the unified closing of the book of Genesis. So read with me starting in chapter 48 verse 1 where we begin with blessings. And here Jacob is going to this, this really is, 48 through 49, is the beginning of the tribes of Israel. So the tribes of Israel grow out of Jacob's 12 sons. Each son in this passage, 48 through 49, is blessed or anti-blessed. And each tribe of Israel is named after those sons. So, starting in verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold your, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength. Now you can tell at this point, although we've mentioned it before, that the word, the name Israel and Jacob are interchangeable. Jacob was renamed Israel a few chapters ago when he met God. And so when you see Israel and Jacob, they're interchangeable names referring to the person Jacob who then became Israel. God changes names a lot of people if you notice in scripture. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel, which means strives with God. And that's why Jacob's name was changed, because he was one who strove with God. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me, and said to me, Behold, I will make, free, make you a fruitful and multiply you, make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land as an offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon. Now in just these five verses here, um, Jacob mentions the appearance of God to him and he says it happened at Luz. Luz is Bethel, is the place where he meted God and you can read about that in chapter 28 verse 19. So he refers to the time God came to him and made promises to him and, and gave Jacob those promises that he began with Abraham. So the promises to Abraham are passed on to Jacob. And in verse 4, he promises him the land. And said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply, and I will make you a company of peoples and give you this land to your offspring after you as an everlasting possession. So Jacob's reiterating the promises that were given to him so long ago. And in verse 5, he adopts Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons, thus elevating them from the status of grandson to son. Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of uh, Joseph, and Joseph had them in Egypt from an Egyptian woman. But Jacob is adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons here. Now, by adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons, he's, he, therefore they're going to become heads of tribes. And through his sons, Joseph is going to receive a double portion of the inheritance of the land. And we'll see that. So, here's the scene. Jacob has adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons and begins to bless his own sons. Beginning in verse 8 now. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. 
So Joseph brought them near to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head and to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, he shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By, by you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Now in this, the essence here of what just happened is that God's promises to Abraham have continued through Jacob and now Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh who are Joseph's sons, his grandsons, elevating them to the status of sons and asking God that his name would be carried on through them, which God's name is because Ephraim and Manasseh become tribes of Israel themselves. Now what is unusual about this blessing is that the social convention is that the blessing would go to the, the greater blessing would go to the firstborn son. The blessing of the right hand would go to the firstborn son. And so Joseph, when he was about to give his sons to his father to bless them, gave Manasseh to the right hand of Jacob and Ephraim to the left hand of Jacob. This is just how it's done. The, the firstborn son is going to get the greater blessing. But Jacob switches his hands, kind of crosses his hands, and blesses Ephraim with his right hand and gives him the greater blessing. And Jacob informs him that the younger will be greater than the older. Again, social convention says that the blessing goes to the firstborn, but here the blessing is reversed. And it shows us that God's blessing is never, never in the scripture according to social conventions. There is always something else at play when God blesses the people. I, I love the way one commentator put it, John Salehammer. He writes, The passage continues the well-established theme that the blessing did not follow the lines of natural descent or natural right. The blessing was a gift bestowed upon those who could not claim it as a right. It was bestowed on those who could not claim it as a right. That is the one to whom the blessings belong. It seems consistently throughout the canon. The divine blessing is bestowed on those who have no right to it. Now in ancient times, the blessings of the God was for the strong. 
for the gods, was for the strong, the mighty, the powerful, the many. <clears throat> but when God chooses, he seems to choose the weak and the few so that he can get the glory. And when he in Deuteronomy, at the end of the Pentateuch, when, when we see this reflection on God choosing Israel, listen to what he says. It was not because, of, because you were of more number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. <clears throat> For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see right here from the very beginning of Genesis and even before, if God is going to act on behalf of a people, it is not because he is impressed with them. It is not because they've done something great or mighty or have become ascended or attained some worthiness of their own. God seems to consistently elect in order to be glorified, in order that his name might get the glory, and he would be the one praised as mighty to save. The prophet Isaiah says, This is the one upon whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The one upon whom God looks is the one who trembles at his word. Not the mighty, not the brave and the strong. Not that there's anything wrong with being strong. Not that there's anything wrong with being mighty. But the danger is you could trust in your weakness instead of the arm of the Lord. And the consistent message throughout Scripture is that power, power is given from the Lord and for the Lord's glory. Not by strength, not by power, but by God's Spirit, says the Lord. And we see that even in the blessing, God is consistently choosing the weaker things to confound the wise. And the younger, was it not Abel, the younger son? who gave the greater blessings, who was favored by God? Was it not David, the, the runt of the litter that was chosen? Was it before that, was it not Israel, an inconspicuous man, Abraham, whom God caused, called and made a great nation out of? God uses the weak things in the world to confound the wise. So if you, would, if, if you want God's power in your life, Weakness seems to be the way. J.I. Packer, who was a very weak man, who was run, hit by a, a bus when he was five years old, running out into the street, had a big ga gap in his head. It's not gap, but a big uh, just mark in his head his whole life, was used mightily by God, mightily by God to teach the church about his glory and about serving and obeying him. And he, one of his last books that he wrote is really a reflection on his life, but the title is Weakness is the Way. Weakness is the way in God's kingdom. Because then you rely on him. And that's a good thing. Now, moving on to chapter 49, Jacob, now is, he's done blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, and now Manasseh, and now he's going to bless his own sons. And he pronounces blessings upon them. Starting in verse 49, verse 1. Chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his own sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen, to Israel, your father. So again, this is disorienting for modern readers. What is going on? He's calling his sons donkeys and using these poetic languages. What exactly language is what exactly is the point? The point is this Jacob, who is the father and the patriarch and the leader of the tribe of Israel, 
is pronouncing blessings upon his sons before he dies. That's the essence of what's happening. Why is so much attention given to these blessings? Why does the text not just say, well, and he blessed them all? Two reasons. Number one, they are predictions of what will happen or prophecies of what will happen to his son's tribes, the tribes that come after his son's names. Secondly, they are power. They, they have a power, it seems, to shape the future. That is why Jacob, so many years ago, what, longed for the birthright of his brother Esau because he believed and saw that it had a particular power to shape the future, the blessing of the firstborn. So these blessings are significant as prophecies and power to shape the history of Israel. So there are, I want to focus just on four blessings. We're not going to go through every blessing, although every son is blessed in a unique way. There are four blessings that stand out in particular. First is Reuben, the firstborn son, starting in verse 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. The reason that Reuben shall not have preeminence is because of what he did in the past. In the past, he made a power play in the tribe of Israel when he slept with his father's concubine, which in ancient times was a, a known way of trying to usurp leadership in a tribe or a kingdom. He did that, and now in this blessing, the very thing he sought, which is preeminence, in the tribe is being taken away from him. So what the sons have done in the past do influence what happens to them in the future. So Reuben is de-elevated from the firstborn to one who shall not have preeminence. What about Simeon and Levi? Verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willingness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Simeon and Levi in rage, which you could think of as justified rage, because their sister was raped by the Shechemites, went in and utterly destroyed that city, killing every man, woman, and child, and carrying off the gold with them. So it seems like what, hap what began as justified anger actually gave birth to violent revenge and outrage even killing the innocent. And so, they are de-elevated de as well. And Jacob says, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Interestingly enough, these two tribes were divided and scattered in Israel. Levi, the tribe of Levi, although they were the priests, never had land allotted to them. Cities here and there, but not a portion of land allotted to them. Simeon, his inheritance was actually absorbed by the tribe of Judah. Now, if you turn in the back of your Bibles and look at your map, which you're free to do now, but if you look at your maps, you're going to see probably the allotment of the Holy Land, and maybe in colors or you're in circles, you're going to see the Holy Land 
sectioned off by tribes. These tribes grew out of these sons mentioned here. And if you look at the lower, kind of the left, low, lower left of your map, you're going to see the tribe of Judah. And you will notice that Simeon is absorbed by the tribe of Judah. And that Levi, the Levites, do not have an allotment of the land. So it is very interesting that they were, in a sense, divided and scattered in Israel. Those are two negative blessings. Now there are two positive blessings. First is Judah. Read with me in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Now don't forget, this was the Judah who slept with prostitutes, was uh, the one to suggest that they sell Joseph to slavery. This was not a good man. But what happened is that through testing and through trials, God forged Judah to become a man who would eventually stand in the gap for his younger brother and say, take me instead to Joseph, into jail. I couldn't bear it if I saw my father. So Judah actually has made progress, spiritual progress in life. And now he is blessed. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the, be the obedience of the peoples. Now it is difficult to discern every aspect of this oracle, but the essence of it is a royal blessing. It's a kingly blessing. He'll, he'll be a warrior king. The peoples will bow down to him. He's characterized as a lion. The scepter, is that's the thing the king holds when he's judging, will not pass between his feet until tribute comes to him. Which in context could be the Ark of the Covenant, which it is when it is brought into his territory, allotted to him. But he's given a kingly blessing. And so this sinful man who kind of matured into a spiritually holy man, it seems, is given this kingly blessing. You know why I think this is not just a matter of God seeing spiritual progress and blessing it? Because I see even in the birth of Judah a prophecy that this man is unique. He will be unique. In, Ge in Genesis 29, verse 35, Leah is having children, if you remember. And Leah and Rachel are kind of competing with one another. Who can have the most children? And Leah constantly is having another child and says, Now maybe this time my, my husband will love me. No, th by this child... This child, by having him, now my husband will love me. But when it comes to her finally having Judah, here's what the passage says. And she conceived again, this is 29 verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. And then she ceased bearing. Isn't that interesting? That Leah was brought finally to a point of worship. This time I will praise the Lord. No longer seeking for social standing, even in the family, through the birth of my children. But you know what? This time I will praise the Lord. Very interestingly, God took that praise and gave Judah the blessing of the kingly line. 
And you know who would come to that for that king line? The King David would come through that line. And even greater than David, Christ himself would come through the line of Judah. And you could read about that in Matthew 1, 1 through 16, where the King of Kings and Lord of Lords came from a line whose mother finally said, this time I will praise the Lord. And I find that very interesting. So Judah's blessing here is not just a matter of the Lord seeing him make progress and giving him a blessing. This seems to have been in the mind of God before the world began. So there's Judah. Joseph in verse 22 is then blessed, who has gone through a lot, sold into slavery, years in prison, and finally ascends to the right hand of the most powerful man in the world at the time. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. So right here, Judah's being sold into slavery is recast in terms of a battle, it seems. Yet his bow remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, the blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. A lot of poetic language there um, characterizing Joseph's life in terms of a battle, but God was his helper all along, and God's protection and preservation. Interestingly, though, through his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph gets a double portion, a double portion of the blessings. And so that's what the blessings are about. All these sons are blessed, and, chapter, and verse 28 kind of summarizes all these blessings. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. So this is how the twelve tribes of Israel were born. They grew out of the sons of Jacob who were blessed, and these men become the ancestors of the twelve tribes. And you even see the predictions of how these tribes will live and move in these oracles of Jacob. It is very interesting that throughout all of Jacob's life, through his fighting with the angel, through his reconciling with his brother Esau, his ordeal with Joseph, through in spite of all of that, it is this act of faith that Hebrews chooses to highlight. His blessings of his sons. The book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith. Why did he single out this? It is because these blessings demonstrate Joseph's faith in God's promise. That God would bless his family, make them a mighty nation, and they would be the source of blessing to all the nations of the earth. By faith, Jacob blessed them. And so we have a great act of faith by Jacob here before he dies. Now we come to the burials. And the burials are examples of dying in faith. Jacob and Joseph are going to die in Egypt, not their home. 
but they're both of them, their last wishes are to be brought into the promised land. Read with me in verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury, we, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Isaac, or there they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And so Jacob passes off the scenes and dies, the man who strove with God. Jacob mentions this cave that was purchased by Abraham. We covered that all the way back in chapter 23. When Sarah died, Abraham bought the first piece of the promised land, which was, interestingly, interestingly enough, a place to be buried. And he, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Leah, and now Jacob will be buried in that field not having received the promises. Not yet having received the promises, but only tasted them and saw them from afar through faith. This whole family was buried there. It seems like being buried in this cave is like if he were to have a, a tombstone, it would say, this one died in faith in God's promises. God promised them this land. And this request, this last wish to be buried in this land shows that they clung to that promise even in death. They, cling, they were clinging to that promise. And now we come to Joseph who's going to pass off the scene as well of redemptive history beginning in verse 15 of chapter 50 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him so they sent a message to Joseph saying your father gave this command before he died say to Joseph Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions transgressions of the servants of God, your Father. So it seems like to make up a story. I mean, there's no record of Abraham saying that. Maybe he did. Maybe his sons are just really afraid that now that, it, that Jacob's dead, Joseph is really going to get back at us for... You know, selling him into slavery and all that. Here's Joseph's response. And this is the pinnacle of the book. This is the pinnacle of the Joseph narrative. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear. For am I, in the am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You see the character of Joseph here not seeking revenge upon his brothers, but actually speaking kindly towards them. And we know that the things God, many people mean for evil, God has turned it for good. And that, that comes to its highest height 
in Acts chapter 2 when Peter says, you crucified Jesus Christ, but God raised him up, and that these things happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God repurposes and uses evil and folds evil, the evil of men, into his causality, even bringing so great a salvation through it, so that the Jews themselves would cry with bloodthirstiness when they were saying, crucify him. They would say, his blood be upon our heads. And it was. And his blood, though, does not call out for condemnation. It calls out for forgiveness and for justification. So even though they called revenge upon themselves, the blood of Christ has washed them clean from their former ignorance. And those people who crucified Christ a month and a half later formed the early church in Acts. Derek Kidner in his commentary says of Joseph's response to his brothers, each sentence of his threefold reply is a pinnacle of Old Testament and New Testament faith. To leave all the writing of one's wrongs and to see the, his providence in man, to see God's providence of, ma, of man's malice to God, to leave all the writings of one's wrongs to God, and to repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection, are the attitudes which anticipate the adjective Christian and even Christ-like. Amen. We do not repay reviling for reviling, but we continue to entrust the Lord. The, the one who said, revenge is mine. I will repay. Now we come to Joseph's death. But by the way, look at the perspective of Joseph. Before we get to his death, everything that has happened to him. When he was 17, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers, sold into slavery, wrongfully accused and spent years in prison then finally ascending but being separated from his family all the while and you can even tell in this passage that there was never that f even though there was reconciliation there was still fear of him on behalf of his brothers so he never got to enjoy the fullness of family it seems and yet his whole life, he characterizes his whole life as a life lived under the good and mighty hand of God. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Every time Joseph speaks, he speaks about what happened to him as something that happened according to God's plan and God's care and provision for him. A life that acknowledges God. There is, there is a, a scene in a movie that I cannot get through without crying. It's the animated 1970s Pilgrim's Progress. You can look this up. On, I can send it to you if you'd like. But Pilgrim has finally reached the end of his journey in this in this passage and. His last step is to cross a river, and that's the river of death. And God says to him, before you reach Zion, you must pass through the river of death. This is a hard thing. But call to mind what the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. May your faith be strong. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And then, as the, as the music is playing, it's just they did a fantastic job with this. Pilgrim goes through the waters. And just as the waves finally crash over his head, Pilgrim's life begins to flash before his eyes. And we see scenes of Doubting Castle, 
and his battle with Apollyon, his time spent through Vanity Fair, his walk with the valley of the shadow of death, and God being with him there all the time, carrying him along the path, seeing him safely into his heavenly kingdom. And finally, he comes out the other side of the river of death, and the Lord is there to greet him. It's a beautiful depiction of a life lived um, in acknowledgement of God's good hand, and then dying in faith. Verse 22 is when Joseph does pass off the scene. So Joseph remained in Egypt, and he and his father's household. Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own sons. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you will carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. A good model of dying in faith. Seeing your whole life in terms of God being with you, and then dying, trusting that even his very bones would be taken to the land of promise. What should a Christian funeral be like? There should be tears. There should be tears. But there should be tears that are overcome with a great and confident hope in God's promises. When I did the funeral for Barbara, who some of you may remember, used to attend the church a few years ago, I looked at her Bible and went to her husband's house talking with him and I looked at her Bible that she had been using before she died and in 1 Peter she underlined all the word every time the word came up she underlined it and that word was hope hope and Paul tells us he tells the Thessalonians this about people who are dying and the Thessalonians are wondering what's going to happen with them he tells them we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We die in hope because Christ died and rose again. And those united to him will die and rise again by his resurrected power in them. So because of Christ, we don't only live in faith, we die in faith. I know, I know I'm talking a lot, a lot about dying in the past few weeks, but my job as a pastor is to get you to prepare to die. Not, not only to live for God, but to die for God. Not only a radiant life, but a radiant death for His glory. We want to live for God, and we want to die for God. Because whether we live, we are the Lord's. And whether we die, we are the Lord's. I'm getting, I'm getting soft in my old age. Because I keep crying at things. But Hebrews 11. <laughs> I was reading a little Pilgrim's Progress we bought for the kids. And the first page has 
just the text of Hebrews 11, 13 through 16 on it. And that text, referring to the family of Abraham, says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Joseph was buried in Egypt. He didn't see the promise, but he greeted it from the far. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Their faith in the promised land anticipates and reaches to the greater promises of a, home, of a greater homeland. That is a heavenly homeland. That they and we will receive in the age to come. Interestingly, you can read about this in Exodus and at the end of Joshua. Joshua's bones were not forgotten, but Joshua's bones during the Exodus was remembered by Moses. And before they left and crossed the Red Sea, they packed up the, Josh, they packed up the bones of Joseph and took them with them to the Promised Land. So his bones did see the promised land. And one day, we trust that his bones will see the heavenly kingdom, the heavenly homeland, the new and better promised land. So, may it be of us that we die the same death of faith that Jacob died and that Joseph died and that the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 died. These all died in faith. And when we are on our deathbed, struck down with some final disease, I ask that what would come out of me is hope and faith and a homeland which I cannot see. But I have reached out and even foreseen through faith. May our faith be strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his work for us. And that closes out the book of Genesis, which has taken us from creation, the creation of the world, to the birth of the twelve tribes of Israel and dying in faith. Let's close in a word of prayer.